Well, let's come to the Lord as we turn to his word. We come with grateful thanks, Heavenly Father, that you have spoken and you have spoken so clearly and so commandingly. And as we come again to this wonderful chapter of Revelation 1, we pray for your blessing, the blessing that's come to us through reading it, but also the blessing as we listen once more to its meaning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are looking at Revelation chapter 1 again this morning, and I assure you it's not the same message as what I preached last week. I said last week that the verses present us with two questions. Uh, The first was... What should the church think of her Lord? And the second was, what does the Lord think of his church? In answering the first question last week, we find that answer, we found that answer in verse 17. It presented us with a picture, not just of Jesus, but also of John, who met Jesus. The verse says of him that our John spoke of this morning, when I saw him, that is Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now for this, for us, this is both interesting and instructive. It's interesting that we find out that John was so overawed with the vision of Jesus before him and his risen glory that all John could do was fall down on his face instructive in that to fall down on your face before Jesus is always the response that is the right one. The health of the church, the future of the church, the daily ministry of the church will flourish and be strong when we all do that every day when we all fall on our faces before the Lord. I say that because if we adopt the opposite posture of remaining standing on our feet, then we could be guilty of insubordination. We could be guilty of thinking somehow that the vision we've seen of Christ before us is somehow worth examining examining and looking at and dissecting and picking apart but not one of worshipping. And that would be a mistake. See, this vision with which the book begins and this response of John to this vision suddenly changes everything. See, many people come to the book of Revelation for answers about the future. That's understandable. But the main thrust of the book is not all about the future. Before we get anywhere else in understanding how we are to approach the book and what this book says to us, we have to fall down at the feet of the one who is speaking. Not because he's interesting but because he is authoritative, he is the Lord. And speaking of interesting, 
Did you see that interesting turn of phrase in verse 12? John says, I turn to see the voice that was speaking to me. You don't usually turn to see a voice, do you? You might turn on hearing a voice to look at who's talking to you. You might turn because you heard a voice. But John says, I heard a voice and I turned to see the voice. It makes us think that this is no ordinary voice that's speaking. This voice is the voice, to borrow a TV show's title. The voice. This is a living voice. Uh, This is a voice that wakes the dead. And so it could. We find in verse 18... John says, he laid his hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the living one. I died and I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now not many people can say those words that Jesus said. Everyone else in world history can only say if they could speak, I was alive but now I'm dead. All the great figures of world history could say, I was alive, but now I'm dead. Or we would have to say that about them. Julius Caesar, Winston Churchill, Shane Warne. Anyone that you care to name or think about. About them we can only say they were alive, but now are dead. But not Jesus. He says about himself, I was dead, but now I live forevermore. Think about that for a moment. All the isms that ever hold sway eventually become wasms, don't they? All the isms become wasms. But Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the one who is and who was and who is to come. The one with the voice that sounds like the voice of many waters. And so this is the second question that confronts us from the text. What does Jesus think about his church? And to answer that question, we're going to think briefly about some more in chapter 1 and then delve into chapters 2 and 3. I know we haven't read them, but this is just preliminary. Well, first let's note that Jesus had something to say to his church. That Jesus had something to say to his church. What makes up Revelation 2 and 3 are seven letters written to seven churches in a region we would now call Eastern Turkey at the end of the first century and they are letters from the Lord Jesus. Yes, they come from the pen of of John, but Jesus is speaking. John is writing. Now this might blow your mind for a moment, but bear with me. The book of Revelation is not necessarily a book by which you can predict the future. Hang with that thought. There are many people out there, both believers and unbelievers, who treat the book like they would the writings of Nostradamus. And they treat it in such a way that you can pick up one verse here and one verse there and work out all that's going to take place and plot for yourself a plan of the future. But that's not what the book's about. 
Nothing of the sort. That's not to say there's no future, because clearly there is. But we just saw last week that the main purpose of the book is to unveil Jesus, to reveal him, the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus, that he's the Lord of all, that he's risen, that he's ascended, that he's glorified, that he's seated on the throne of the universe at the right hand of the majesty on high. And if that's who Jesus is and that's who he is now and if that's where Jesus is and where Jesus is now, you don't have to be a fortune teller to figure out what's going to happen in the future, do you? You don't have to be told. Jesus rules. Jesus reigns. And nothing, we're told by the rest of the Bible, nothing can change that. Now this wrong understanding of the book of Revelation can especially apply to chapters 2 and 3. Some, and there are plenty of interpreters on the internet who've put all kinds of wrong spin on the words of Jesus and said, because Revelation is all about the future... These seven letters letters represent the church in seven different ages of history and into the future. With the last letter, the one written to the church in Laodicea, that's the one written to us in the 21st century. And that's how to understand these letters historically. First century, second century and so on and so on and so on. Nice theory but absolutely not a shred of evidence to support it. Not a shred. These seven letters are historical letters. They were written to churches in the first century. They certainly apply to us now, but we don't need to reinterpret them like that. What they are is plain. They are letters from the Lord Jesus. They are written to seven different churches, all in the same region, all of that same era, all who are the result of the spread of the gospel in that first century world, all who are being faithful or unfaithful in their theology and testimony, all under the watchful eye of the Lord who was writing them to them to put things straight. Now, sometimes within our Presbyterian system of church government, the local regional presbytery, you've heard me talking about presbytery, might have reason to launch an inquiry into the state of affairs of a church. What's going on at St John's Bendigo? We might have some visitors come and they'll conduct congregational meetings and you'll fill out surveys and you'll be asking, uh, answering questions that the presbytery might put to you a congregation because of something that's been said or something that's been heard. They inquire, what's going on? We call it a presbytery visitation. And it starts with an inquiry into the state of the church. Well, here it's clear there's an inquiry into the state of the church and it isn't being done by the presbytery of Asia Minor. The inquiry is being carried out by the Lord Jesus himself. He knows each of these seven churches like the back of his hand and here is his report. 
What's more, let's note too that when Jesus inquires into the state of his church, it's because he cares about the state of his church. He cares about it because it's his church. He died for the church to purchase the church for himself and he already knows the facts and the seven letters to the seven churches reveal the facts about these churches. These letters are what he found when he looked at them. And what he looked to see was this, whether or not the lamp was still burning, whether or not the light was still shining. And he wants to know these things because that is his plan for the church in every generation throughout all of history and into the future. It's always been his purpose with his people in this world to be a light to the nations. It's always been his plan that we be a city on a hill that cannot be hid. It's always been his plan that the church be a light to the world, imitating him who is the light of the world. And so we'll see that this is the critical issue in all of these seven churches. The question will be, is the light still shining? One theologian has put it like this, the church exists for mission as a flame exists by burning. The church exists for mission as a flame exists by burning. This church, every church, All the churches, we all exist for mission to be that light in a dark world as a flame exists by burning. And if that flame is to keep burning and not have that lampstand removed from it, which Jesus threatens, we'll need to listen well to the things that Jesus said in the seven letters that we will unfold in the next seven weeks or so remembering that the biggest threat to the life of the church is not the world. It's the Lord Jesus himself. He threatens to pull the plug. He threatens to say, I will close you down. He is the Lord of the church. That he had something to say to his church is so vital Second, let's note what Jesus had to say to his church. Seven letters to seven churches. We'll look at each of them in turn in the next number of weeks. But for now, let's summarise them, the message that Jesus gives in Revelation 2 and 3 into three words. Affirmation, reformation, motivation. Affirmation, reformation, motivation. Jesus spoke to affirm his church. We all need to be affirmed and given praise where praise is due. It's always good to accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative. And Jesus does that, as we'll see. In five out of the seven of these churches, Jesus finds something positive to say. And so there are only two churches where he's got nothing good at all to say about them. And we can note too that there are two churches where he's nothing bad to say about them. We'll note those two churches as we go along. 
Smyrna and Philadelphia. Uh, Both of these churches are small and struggling and suffering persecution. And that's significant. See, contrary to what people think, it's not suffering and persecution that smothers the light. It's complacency. It's smugness. It's self-sufficiency. It's dead orthodoxy. If you're suffering for Jesus' sake, and there are places we know around the world where Christians are really being persecuted for his sake, then you will only find sympathy and encouragement from the Lord Jesus. We'll see that. The church that is nearest to him, the church that is dearest to him, is the one that shares in his sufferings. He affirms them. He says to them, you're suffering, but it's okay, I'm with you. That means that many churches around the world in countries that we might refer to as third world countries, that means that churches there may well be in a far healthier state than many of our churches in the West for all the bells and whistles that we've got and smoke machines and all the rest of it, thinking that these will impress the world. No, it's Jesus we want to impress, not the world. And so Jesus affirms these churches for their perseverance in the face of persecution. William Carey, the great pioneer missionary to India, once said, I can plod. That's my genius. I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit to a goal. That's what Jesus wants. Plodders, persevering. He's not looking for perfection. He's not looking for performance. He's looking for people who persevere, even if they plod at persevering. They're the people whose names will never appear in the history books, but by their keep on keeping on attitude, they keep the church on the path to what it ought to be. And that's what impresses Jesus. That's what he affirms. Lord Wellington said of his troops in his day, my men are not braver than the enemy, they are just braver for five minutes longer. That's what Jesus is looking for. That's what impresses him. That's what catches his eye. People who are persevering in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds. You see, this is a serious picture of the life of the church, isn't it? It's not a big, rich tea party. It's not a praise concert. It's a life and death matter. It doesn't really matter what the world thinks about us. It does matter what the, world, what the Lord thinks about us. Are we concerned to find out what pleases him? Not how do we compare with the church down the road. How do we compare in the Lord's eyes? That's what we should be concerned about. To be asking his opinion about what changes we need to make in order to please him, not to please ourselves, not to please the world. Secondly, we note that Jesus spoke to reform his church. Uh, There's a line in the hymn, In Heavenly Love Abiding, that goes, For nothing changes here. It's a really nice line in the hymn that has a particular meaning in it, but it's not a good slogan for the church. Nothing 
changes here. Neither is the parody on the line from the hymn that changes the words from like a mighty army moves the church of God to like a giant tortoise moves the church of God. Uh, Brothers, we are treading where we've always trod. You know the joke about how many Presbyterians it takes to change a light bulb, don't you? Change? What's that? But Jesus isn't interested in maintaining the status quo. He's calling for reformation. Here's the judge who stands at the door of his church. That's how John sees him, dressed in the robes of a judge with a golden sash around his chest, standing at the door of his church. You'll see in the last of the seven letters, chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You've probably seen the picture painted by William Holman Hunt on this text. The majestic figure of Jesus with a lamp in his hand is standing there at the door of his church, his shoulder against the door, knocking. The text is taken wrongly to say Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. It's not about that. He's knocking at the door of the church because the church has shut him out. He's on the outside of the church. They've closed the door on him and they don't realise what they've done. He's knocking on the door. Let me in. These words are addressed to the church, not to the door of your heart. Jesus is wanting to come in to put the house in order. See, if you're going to go through the whole book of Revelation, you'll notice that one of its main themes is clearly judgment. And it's so that judgment is coming upon the world, but judgment begins with the house of God. That's what Peter tells us in his letter. And that's what these letters tell us. It's not enough to be reformed. We must always be reforming, like our daughter church. Always going back to the Bible. Always asking what needs to change after every message we hear. What does Jesus want to change in me? How does this affect me from week to week? What does Jesus want to change in the life of the church? Because you'll notice in all the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus has a word for the individual. He says, if anyone hears my voice, anyone in this church, if anyone hears Jesus speaking through the letters, if the cap fits you, wear it. If you hear his voice, wear it. Then we should note that Jesus spoke to motivate his church. We need affirmation, we need reformation, we need motivation and the best motivation is summed up in the story where a Sunday school teacher once asked a student to sum up the book of Revelation in one sentence. That's easy, said the student, Jesus wins. Not even one sentence, just two words. That's the simple message of the whole book. It's as simple as that. Jesus wins. And so it's the promise of victory that Jesus holds out to every one of the seven churches. See, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. Jesus has already won. He's already conquered death. He's already conquered the evil one. He's already conquered the grave. The war 
the battle is still going on, but the war is over. That's what the Christian life is all about. Jesus has won the battle. He has won the war. He now invites us to participate in the victory. So he promises to each of these churches, to the one who hears his word and the one who overcomes, there is a wonderful reward. The letters, and so the whole book, are hugely motivating. Jesus wins in the end. Satan is defeated. The kingdom of Christ will rule. There will be a new heavens and a new earth and we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And because of that, we can have a victory mindset while living as we do in these days when it seems that the church is under attack. And what would that victory mindset look like? It would look like this that despite all the world throws at the church, all the mud it can rake up, it makes not one iota of difference to your standing before him or his estimation of you. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. For surely if you get to the back of the book and see that Jesus wins, then all that's going to happen, even in your future, is all under his control and you can overcome and be more than a conqueror through him who loved you, says Paul in Romans 8.37. Spurgeon commenting on this phrase says, the believers conquered through Christ being their captain. Much depends on their leader and Christ showed them how to conquer. They conquered through Christ being their teacher for his doctrine strengthened their minds. But above all, they conquered because Christ was with them. That is, his body was in heaven, but his spirit was with them. You look at man at what he is and what can he do? He can do nothing. But look at man as one with God with him and the question becomes, what can he not do? For in him we are conquerors and in him, as John says, we overcome the world by faith. That's where we'll leave this second look at Revelation 1 and this brief preview of chapters 2 and 3 and we leave it this, with this question. What does Jesus want to see when he looks at his church? The answer is, well... He wants to see a living church. He wants to see a zealous church. He wants to see a loving church. He wants to see a faithful church. He wants to see a persevering church. He wants to see a church that is a reflection of himself. People obedient to the Father. People loving what he loves. And what he loves is his church. And how do we know that? Because Revelation 1 told us that. He gave himself for the church. And he cares enough to speak out. And his voice ought to wake us from sleep. If only we would turn and see and hear the voice, the trumpet sound, the voice of many waters. Will you pray for that?
that we might hear well. Let's pray. Lord our God, with grateful thanks, we come to you for him who holds the keys of death and hell, for him who is the living one. Thank you for his voice. That he had something to say to his church is remarkable, but what he had to say, well, that challenges us. What kind of church will we prove to be in the light of these seven churches we're going to meet? What changes do you want to make here so that we better reflect you, our Lord, and better advance the gospel? Give us grace to hear, Lord, that your words might be truly heard, that we might hear the voice of the Lord speaking to us with clarity and with power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.